welcome back to the Legendary Habitat Podcast. This is your host, Colin Koskinen, owner of Legendary Habitat Whitetail Land Management and Consulting. Hope everybody has been doing well. I know it's been a little while since I've been on the podcast. I've uh, recently purchased a house and uh, been busy with that. Finally getting moved in, so I'm actually, this is my first podcast in a uh, brand new, I guess, office and studio. So uh, pretty excited about that. I got my own shop here now, so I'm going to be uh, stocking 360 blinds, a bunch of other products um, from Brad Harper, Harper Growing Solutions. Um, we're going to have some vitalized seed in stock, so I'm excited. This is going to be kind of a, a home spot for me right now that I can uh, stock a lot of products and uh, have guys, you know, hopefully local guys uh, come and pick stuff up. So, yeah, really exciting. I'm uh, staying pretty busy. Wanted to give everybody a little background on what I've been up to. Uh, a lot of consulting, a lot of questions on, on um, you know, different consulting questions, and uh, I've got quite a few different clients uh, on the schedule this year so far. Um, so if you're still interested in, you know, getting on my schedule this year, you know, feel free to reach out to me, and I'll see if I can uh, fit you in before spring green up. Uh, I've got most of my jobs, you know, booked up through, you know, just about May right now. Um, but I try to leave a little bit of room in there for other guys, and uh, I've got several bigger projects going on right now. So, uh, Also, I'm going to be trying to do some more footage here on the YouTube channel, um, so be looking for some more content coming out soon. I'm hoping to uh, try to get some more uh, content of our farm this year, and I'm going to be hopefully doing put together kind of a whole video series on that. So I'm uh, pretty excited about, about doing that. Give guys a little bit more visual stuff, um, showing exactly you know what I'm doing on properties, how I'm doing it, uh, stuff like that, kind of breaking things down. So hopefully you guys are enjoying that. I appreciate everybody watching uh, YouTube videos. And uh, yeah, so anyway, we're going to jump into uh, first podcast of 2024. And uh, I'm excited. I've got a great guest on here. I think you guys are going to enjoy. Uh, this is uh, going to be uh, John Eberhardt. Uh, many of you probably know him. He's a, a, you know, a local uh, Michigan legend, I guess you could call it, in the uh, world of bow hunting. So yeah, excited to uh, have him on here. We're going to be discussing quite a few uh, cool topics, uh, you know, a lot on postseason scouting, some relative stuff that guys can really uh, use right now, you know, both on public land and on private land, you know, stuff to be looking for on your property. Um, right now, we're going to be going over and over, you know, finding bedding, uh, different types of security cover, and uh, kind of take you through the whole process that John uses, uh, you know, breaking down public land and uh, obviously lots of private land. So excited for that, and uh, we will jump right in here shortly. Well, hey everyone, we have uh, John Eberhardt on here. How you doing, John? I'm doing great, Colin, and yourself? I am doing good. I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, so for those of you that don't know who John Eberhardt is, um, John has been uh, hunting here in, in Michigan for a long time and um, has shot a lot of great bucks. And um, he's also uh, just recently made it on the front cover of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. And um, what, you know, what accomplishment to, uh, to make it on that front cover and uh, to, to uh, get the publicity that he uh, has earned over the uh, several years of hunting here in uh, heavily pressured uh, you know, state of Michigan. So, John, if you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and then uh, yeah. we'll dive into sure. it. Yeah, I'm, I'm 72 years old. I've been bow hunting for 56 years in Michigan, and I started hunting out of state 
because I don't gun hunt. I started hunting out of state in 1997. I went to, you know, like Iowa, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Ohio, Illinois, some of the easier to kill big buck states. And uh, I've got 35 uh, book bucks in Michigan that are in the record book, and I've got 20 Pope and Young bucks from out of state. And um, I 100% exclusively have always hunted on either public land or free permission properties. I've never owned any property. I've never hunted a relative's property. I've never paid a dime to hunt any place in my life. I don't hunt over bait, and um, I just hunt hard. And I hunt in Michigan, which is the most heavily bow hunted state in the country. And um, so I'm always hunting very heavily pressured deer, and uh, it ta- it just takes a lot more work to kill kill mature bucks in areas that we got a lot of heavy hunting pressure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. That's for sure. Yeah, so I guess we can kind of, uh, you know, dive right into things here. Um, you know, obviously, just like you said, you have a lot of experience in hunting pressured, you know, whitetails, you know, in Michigan. And, you know, I think a lot of that, you know, that discipline and um, that success has come from, you know, a lot of time spent in the woods, you know, scouting. And, you know, I know you're, you're pretty detail oriented in a lot of that, those aspects. And, um, so that's one thing I wanted to, you know, bring you on and give, you know, give listeners a little bit of a background on, you know, how you go about breaking down public land, you know, whether it be public land or, you know, spots of private. And, um, you know, I know you mentioned a lot on uh, your YouTube channel, which if you guys haven't checked out, be sure to check out Eberhard Outdoors YouTube channel. John's got a lot of great content on there. And, um, so, you know, I know you mentioned you do a lot of videos on postseason scouting and, um. So I kind of wanted to, you know, get your perspective on, yep. you know, breaking down public land, you know, different types of security cover. Um, so if you kind of want to start there, go into, you know, how you kind of break down, you know, picking a spot that you think is going to have potential, you know, yep. for, for a buck to, to meet your goal. Well, back in my early years, in the late 60s and uh, into the early early to mid-70s, you know, I did all my scouting, you know, during preseason which is like most people do now. Uh, there was no such thing as postseason scouting. There was no print. There was no media on it. Uh, we didn't have TV hunting shows at the time. Mm-hmm. So all there was is magazine articles. Um, and one after one season, I decided, uh, you know, as soon as gun season was over and I'd filled my bow tag, back then it was one buck. Um, I decided, decided to go out after gun season because we didn't have any snow on the ground. And, and do some, you know, post-season, post-bow-season scouting. And it just opened my eyes big time because I could trash the property, public land property out as much as I want or the free permission property I was on. I could scout every inch of it. I didn't have to worry about scooping deer like you do during pre-season. I could scoop every deer out of an area. I could scout it, you know, every inch of it and spend four or five days in a row from you know, as soon as it's light enough to see until dark, scouting every inch of it and picking locations, and it didn't affect next fall's hunting because it was so far in advance of season. Yeah. You know, when I used to do my preseason scouting and location preparation, you know, anytime you're in an area where there's a lot of heavy hunting pressure, the, the bucks that are older, the, by the time they get to three and a half years old, they're really smart, and there's been no human activity in the area for months 
after season. And then all of a sudden, all the other hunters start doing their preseason scouting and location preparation. And the older bucks, they know that gig. They know what that is. That's, they view, they don't know you're scouting. They think you're trying to kill them. So that human influx of activity causes them to go bed deeper into the security cover and stay very security cover oriented. So ever since the 70s, I've started doing 90% of my scouting and location preparation on pre-permission private. Obviously, you can't prep a location on public mm-hmm. uh, and leave your stuff in the tree because it'll get stolen. But all of my lo- or scouting and location preparation or you know picking out locations for public land is done during postseason as soon as the snow melts. Because I live in Michigan, we got a lot of snow on the ground right now. As soon as the snow melts, I'll be out scouting new properties and looking for new locations on existing public lands that I hunt. And I became, I also, because I'm in such a heavily pressured state and I'm hunting public and free permission properties where there's always other hunters that I don't know, um, you know, I'm always looking for security cover areas, areas that have security cover. To me, when you're hunting in a pressured area, Security cover, security cover, security cover. It's all about that. Mature bucks that, that I want to kill, that make buck, uh, they just don't move very frequently outside of some semblance of security cover during daylight hours. Yep. So everything, when I pick out a location, whether it's at an oak tree or uh, an apple tree or a primary scrape area or a transition corridor between bedding areas or locations in bedding areas, Whatever the case may be, the physical location that I'm hunting has to have some form of perimeter security cover around the kill zone, the area that I'm hunting, and it has to have some form of transition security cover to a known bedding area because a mature buck in a pressured area is not going to leave a bedding area in the evening and walk through open timber with no understory where they're totally exposed or walk across an open field like you see on TV to go to a feeding location or a scrape area. They're not going to make that vulnerable movement in that open timber or an open area because if they did that, very often they'd be, they'd be dead. Yeah. You know, there's just too much hunting pressure. Yep. So everything has to have the adequate perimeter security cover and transition security cover to a known bedding area or be within a bedding area for me to even consider it as a hunting location. Yeah, yep, for sure. So I guess kind of breaking that down even further, um, what are some more specific features that you're looking for? Obviously that security cover is huge, but do you layer on other features? Obviously I'm sure your access plays a big role in that. Um, and then obviously you know how far you're going in to a piece of public. Um, Obviously, for one, to find that mature buck or to avoid other hunters, you know, obviously is is a lot of the other (laughs) side of things. Um, And then, you know, terrain features and and so on and so forth. Okay. When I'm I'm physically scouting, I'm looking for several criterions. I'm looking for – my primary thing is to look for rut phase locations because in every state, I don't care what state you live in, 55 to 65, and I have all the stats because I've written three bow hunting books, and I did the stats for every single book. I did all the statistics. Uh, 55 to 65% of all the record book bucks are taking during the three- to four-week rut phase periods. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you've got a season that's three to four months long, 
you want to key your hunting time during the rut phases. So when I'm postseason scouting, I'm primarily looking for rut phase locations, but I'm also looking for early season locations. Now, early season locations are going to be, you know, at Oaks or at, I'm in Michigan, so there's a lot of the timber that we have now uh, used to be pasture 50, 60 years ago. So there's lost apple trees or isolated apple trees, yep. or I'm looking for scrape areas uh, for early season. And then when I'm looking for rut phase locations, I'm usually back in the bedding areas. I hunt a lot of bedding areas during the rut phases because if I wanted to kill you or anybody listening to this podcast, <laughs> my best place would be to hide in their house. Yep. Now, there's lots of doors into a bedding area, just like there's usually three doors. You know, I've got three doors into my house. I got one where I pull in the garage, there's a door there, there's a front door, and there's a back door. Yep. So there's three doors. Now, if I were to stake out one of the doors, my odds would be 33% in killing you on a single on a single attempt. Whereas if I got into your house while you weren't there, and the while you weren't there is a key factor in this, mm-hmm. you know, then I would have a hundred percent opportunity to kill you because you're going to come home every day and you're going to go in the kitchen and either eat or you're going to go upstairs and go to bed. So that's where I would stake myself out is in the kitchen or up in your bedroom. I wouldn't do it at one of your doors because that would lower my eyes. Yep. And, so, and when I said, when, you know, I, I would have to go into the house while you obviously were not there, you'd have to do the same thing in a bedding area. When you're, when you're going to hunt a bedding area during the rut phases, you know, typically in a pressured area, if there's any mature bucks, they're going to transition into that bedding area before daylight. This isn't TV fantasy land we're yeah. talking about yeah. here where <laughs> bucks do stupid things. They're pretty dumb. This is this is reality hunting. So you have to be in the bedding area, in your location, set up in your tree at least an hour and a half before daylight. And you have to, you should, I shouldn't say you have to, you should sit all day. Because if you were to go in with a regular morning entry into a bedding area, you know, half hour, 15 minutes before daylight, a typical hunter's entry time, the bucks are already transitioned and you're going to spook them. You know, you're going to spook them. You may not know it, but you're going to spook them ahead of you. And also on an evening hunt, you obviously can't go into a bedding area without spooking deer. And I always, so during rut phases, I sit all day. I'm in there way before daylight. And I usually leave about a half hour after dark because I don't want to get down at dark while they may still be in the bedding area. They haven't transitioned out yet. They'd wait till dark. I want to wait a half hour after dark so that I'm trans. I'm leaving after they've already exited the bedding area. So I'm not leaving any presence of myself being there. And I'm a big scent control freak, so I'm not worried about leaving human odor. Yep. There basically is no presence of me being there. And when they're in their bedding areas during the rut phases, they're usually pushing does around. They're in the breeding mode. They may have a you know a doe in there that they're physically breeding during her estrus cycle. And they don't stand in one spot and breed. They breed, and then maybe 20 minutes later, he'll chase her another 40, 50 yards around in bedding area and breed again. And they do that all day long. Yep. So there's always, in a, when you're in a bedding area during the rut phases, you know, you're going to have deer moving around all day. The middle of the day is going to be a little bit boring. You're not going to see as much activity. But to give you a really interesting stat, in Michigan, I've killed 
20 book bucks between November 1st and November 14th. Our gun season opens November 15th. So those 14 days, I've killed 20 book bucks. Seven of them were shot between 11 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so that's 35% of my rut phase kills were during midday. Yeah. While less than 8% of my time spent on stand during all those years of November 1 through 14, you know, less than 8% of my time on stand was during midday. Usually I, a lot of times I was just hunting mornings or just hunting evenings outside of the bedding area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's a very interesting statistic. It is. And then yeah. obviously the early season locations, which are food-based for the most part, you know, they're – they're uh, in a bedding to feeding routine during the early season. So I'm looking at oak trees, apple trees, uh, and also active scrape areas, which are usually around some form of food source, maybe around a perimeter of a cornfield or a bean field. Mm-hmm. But they're typically at oaks that are dropping or apple trees that are dropping. I also, once I prepare up all my locations or waypoint mark them on my onyx, if they're public land locations, because I can't prepare them, I just have to mark where they're at. Sure. I'll go back and do a speed tour, usually around September 20th to the 28th of September, because bucks are typically, mature bucks anyway, the bigger bucks, they're usually totally rubbed out and hard antlered by the 5th of September. Mm-hmm. So by me going in after the 20th, they've had two to two and a half weeks to leave some form of sign at the locations that they're feeding at. So I'll do a speed tour of all my early season locations. I will not go in bedding areas. They're strictly my early season locations. I'm wearing full scent lock. I'm not worried about leaving odor. And what I will do is I'll just make a quick tour of my early season locations. And I may have 15 of them. You know, I'll usually have 40 trees prepped at the end of postseason for the year. And I, I may have 15 of those, 20, 12, whatever, that are early season locations. So I'll do a speed tour and check to see if those oaks have acorns and if they are dropping or the apple trees produce apples and are dropping. Because, you know, if you pre- prepare an oak, you have no clue if it's going to have acorns that long right. until you actually go back and find out. So yeah, exactly. I do that speed tour, and I'm actually seeing which trees produce food and are dropping, and then if they are, I look at what buck sign is around them because they've had two to three weeks to either you put rubs or possibly scrapes, well, you know, big droppings, their tracks, there's going to be does feeding there. So that's going to attract them to making scrapes. Um, you know, I'll, I'll see what kind of buck activity they have. And then I will hunt them accordingly to what, which ones are dropping food and which ones have the best uh, buck sign and which ones have the best, security cover i always hunt the the spots that have the best security cover offering if i have two spots that are equal Mm -hmm. i'll always hunt the best one that has the best security cover around it because mature bucks just they just don't walk out into open areas like you see on tv in pressured areas they just don't do that yep for sure no 100 percent agree and um you know i obviously i i work with a lot of uh, clients every year you know, designing properties and doing the implementation implementation work. You know, doing the actual habitat work. And um, yeah, no, it's a hundred percent correct. And 
So one of the things I kind of wanted to go back to real quick and touch on that you mentioned was hunting in bedding areas. And one of the things I wanted to focus around or get your take on is how many times are you typically going into a bedding area um, in order to kill that buck or how many times does it typically take you to go in there? And if you don't kill that buck on whatever that first sit, how many times are you typically trying to go back in and kill that specific buck before you feel like that spot is burnt out or your percentage of killing him has has really gone down? Well, most people that burn their locations out, they burn them out with their entries and exits or with their poor scent control. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's pretty common for most hunters, probably 95% of bow hunters that do not not have a scent control regiment that have to pay attention to wind. When they're going to a location, you know, they're leaving human odor, you know, and they're, they're, uh, you know, just because a deer doesn't come in there while they're physically there and spook, that doesn't mean that deer going by that location after dark don't smell that there was a human activity there and they will avoid that spot during daylight hours. Yeah. So I don't have to worry too much about that. The only thing I have to worry about as far as a location going downhill as far as deer sighting from time, hunt to hunt to hunt is if I have a poor entry and exit or if deer physically hear me getting down out of my tree after dark and leaving, if they physically hear me doing that, you know, that's a negative. But as far as leaving human odor, I don't leave human odor. Okay. So when I'm hunting in a bedding area, um, I'll hunt a bedding area probably no more than three times oh you know a location in a bedding area you know yep. if it's a big bedding i may have two or three locations and they may right. be several hundred apart yep uh but i'll i i don't feel i feel very comfortable hunting them two or three times uh, without altering any deer traffic there whatsoever because i'm in them before daylight and i don't leave until after dark and on public land i i have to throw this in you know on hub, public land when i'm out there postseason scouting I'm pretending, okay, when I come here to hunt, you know, if I decide to come in this area and hunt on this public piece of public land, where are the only locations on this land that I might feel comfortable moving around during daylight hours, during the rut phases? Now, keep in mind, when you're scouting public land during postseason or any land during postseason, you're looking at the land and the trees that you're going to prepare in the exact same manner as they will look during the rut phases because the foliage is down during postseason and the ground foliage and the tree foliage will be down during the rut phases. So when you're scouting during postseason, you can say, hey, I need to get up this tree 25 feet because if I sit down at 18 feet, which is a spot I may prep during preseason because I got a lot of background cover and foliage in the tree, and I look like I got plenty of cover, but when I go back to hunt that same tree that I prepped during preseason, during the rut, you know, I'm going to be sticking out like a sore thumb because now the foliage is gone. Right. So postseason, you're scouting, looking at the security cover exactly the way it's going to look during the rut and looking at the tree exactly the same. Yep. So so you, you have a sense of what, security cover is there and how deer are going to use it because a lot of times preseason you will go in and scout an area everything looks dense because there's foliage on all the brush all the ground cover there's tall vegetation tall weeds and when you go back during you know rut phases those weeds are tipped over from the winds or maybe rains and 
the leaves are all down and everything looks totally different. So you get a true sense of the security cover when you're scouting during postseason. But I try to present, everybody's trying to kill me. We're the only places on this property I will go. And typically in Michigan, I have to cross rivers with either hip boots or waders, chest waders, or a canoe, kayak, or possibly across a lake with a with a boat or a canoe with a trolling motor on it. Because if you don't separate, you know, we've got 350,000 bow hunters. If you can't separate yourself from the other hunters, there's no reason for you to have to think you're going to have better success than they are. Yep. Because if you can walk to a location on public land and it's got a lot of sign, there are other hunters are going to find it as well. So, you know, I, I won't set up any locations if I can just easily stand up and walk to them. I don't care if there's 50 rubs and 100 scrapes. Um, <laughs> yep. that, They're probably made at night. There are any right? of those, yeah, if any of those yeah. were made in the by a mature buck, it was all after dark. Yeah, they may get visited by one or two-and-a-half-year-olds in the daytime, right. but that's not what I'm after. Yep, yep, So, sure. so what you have to put thing, everything into perspective. Right. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, so one other thing, too, is I kind of wanted to give present you with a little bit of an example and, and get your take on it. Um, so, you know, let's say you've got – I know you've hunted a little bit, you know, big woods kind of up north. Um so let's say you you know you've got a big piece of public ground and you've got lots of areas that have you know what you would say good security cover um, and you know fairly good access. How do you go about breaking down these different areas as far as where you want to start first or where you think there's really good potential for there to be a mature buck there? Is it simply off of just e scouting? Is it off of you know just you know um, postseason scouting or you know are there specific things you're looking for as far as terrain features um you know different things like that that you can kind of key in on or that you do key yeah. in on. yeah and uh, well first off uh when i'm walking if i go to a big area of public land in a big timber area where where there's no ag for miles and miles and miles yeah uh, i will walk right through open timber so if there's, you know, if there's mature oaks and maples and popples, whatever the case may be, uh, if, if there's no understory, no dense understory beneath the canopy, which is very common because the canopy doesn't allow enough sunlight to let undergrowth grow, mm-hmm. uh, I'll walk right through it. it. It won't even it won't even enter my mind as a spot that I would want to hunt. Right. So when I'm physically e-scouting. You know, it's hard to it's hard to decipher what what is actually there because usually the picture you see on aerials, the canopy's on. You know, yeah. they're usually summer pictures, and so you have no no idea what kind of understory is beneath the canopy. You don't know there may be autumn olive bushes or briars or you know there may be some security cover underneath it, and then it may be bare other than you know just leaves and a briar here and there. Right. So until you actually put your feet on the ground, you don't know. But I do look for swamps. I do look for cattail marshes. I look for uh, tall weed fields. I do look for heavy security cover in the form of several-year-old cutovers. Because in Michigan, a lot of times when you get up north, you know, they will do 40-acre cutovers, uh, you know, where they just clear-cut the area. And that'll give the deer, you know, five or six years of, of uh, food, you know, preferred browse to eat as that's growing up. And yeah. then after several years of growing, that stuff's so tall and so dense, it's a phenomenal bedding area. Yep. 
so I look for that. And like I said, marshes, uh, you know, wet marshes that have little islands or bogs on them that deer can bet on, uh, cattail marshes, uh, cedar swamps. Um, and I also look for, you know, an oak ridge that may possibly, you know, have a little bit of security cover coming down the side of the ridge that dumps into a cedar swamp or something. Okay. So I, I can hunt that. That would be a transition corridor for a deer in the evening to come out of that cedar swamp where he's bedding and work his way up to the up to the oak. So would they, on an evening hunt, I'd actually physically be up in the oaks, whereas on a morning hunt, I would be down where that transition corridor fed into the cedar swamp, catching him coming out of the off the ridge in the morning, coming down into the cedar swamp. Yeah. So yeah. I, I look for those funnels and, and security cover. Every Everything has to be security cover oriented. When I go out of state, it doesn't. Yep. When I go to Iowa and Kansas, I drop my guard huge because <laughs> right. those here will walk in open areas. But yep. in, in Michigan and, you know, states like New York and PA and West Virginia, yep. where there's tons and tons of hunting pressure, security, it's all about security cover. Yep, yep, for sure. So here's another question, too, and this pertains to security cover. I know you hunt a fair amount, you know, obviously in southern Michigan and, you know, mid-Michigan, we have a lot more ag. And, you know, how do um, cornfields play into security cover and hunting around them? You know, I know some guys get frustrated and the corn's still up and, you know, holding a lot of deer, you know, but ultimately, you know, if you understand how deer, you know, work, they, they you know, they love they're, they're selective browsers, and they love browsing on a diversity of, of different, you know, things. And so I think a lot of times they get pushed into these cornfields. Um, but, you know, I think a deer ultimately doesn't want to spend, you know, its whole life in a cornfield. Um, so how do you kind of combat, you know, hunting those cornfields and, you know, deer kind of getting pushed into there? Well, I'm writing uh, my fourth book, and I've got an entire chapter on hunting standing corn. So that's a oh, good, good question. Okay, nice. Yeah. I, I embrace standing corn. Most hunters absolutely hate standing corn because yep. they don't know how to hunt it. Mm-hmm. Um, standing corn it, standing corn is awesome for spot, doing sparring sequences. And I'm not talking about during the rut phases. I'm talking about as soon as your season opens. I don't care if you're in Wisconsin where you got a mid-September. Some states you got a, a early September opener. We happen to have an October one opener. You know, obviously the rut isn't even close to this time frame, but there's still the bucks are still sparring for pecking order. They're still pushing each other. They're not physically fighting. They're just putting their heads together, pushing each other. It's not uncommon to see a four point spar with a 10 point you know and the 10 point weighs twice as much as he does but they just push for a few seconds and finally the four point will just take off (laughs) you know or you know they don't want anymore right Uh, so they're not fighting but they're sparring for pecking order with of all the bucks within that core area and i do that i replicate i love hunting the edge of standing corn because what a better place to bed in the late summer and early fall during season, and then in standing corn, you've got phenomenal security cover. You can stand up and walk in it. It's way over a deer's antlers, yep. and they can feed in it. So it's absolutely a phenomenal bedding area. And in most areas where there's standing corn fields, if the field's big enough, 
and the corn is tall enough, you know, if it was planted correctly, you know, that's where the big bucks will be. And I have rattled lots and lots of bucks out of standing corn, and I've shot, I think my last uh, 22, I shot a buck, rattled out of standing corn. 21, I shot a buck, rattling him out of standing corn. I've done it many, many times. Yeah. And uh, and what's cool about standing corn and sparring, I shouldn't say rattles, I've sparred. I don't do aggressive rattle sequences like you see on TV. Yep. I yep. just do time tickling noises. And mornings seem to be the best, actually. And I'll just get in a tree. I like to, if, if, if it presents itself, you know, a lot of times when you walk around a, the perimeter of a standing corn, you'll find scrapes because does are going in and out of the corn during the day and at night, and wherever there's runways going in and out of the corn, there's very likely to be scrapes there by the more mature bucks that are in that area. So I like to find scrapes, and then if there is security cover or timber on the other side of the standing corn, in other words, you got standing corn, then you're going to have maybe a two- or three-yard little gap, and then you're going to have timber or whatever it may be, weeds, and briars and then some timber. I love hunting the edges of standing corn, maybe five to 10 yards outside of the corn. And then I also like to put a lane into the corn. I won't, because I don't own the corn field. I'll usually walk in the corn, maybe 25 yards from my tree straight into the corn and I'll knock the corn stalks over 45 degrees. I'll make a, a shooting lane, if you will, in the corn. Because when you rattle on the edge of a cornfield, because it's heavy security cover, it's a, a buck is much more liable, a mature buck's much more liable to respond to it, but he may not break the edge of the cornfield. He may not come out of the cornfield because he doesn't want to be exposed. Yep. So he may come out and then just walk, you know, four or five rows in the corn along that edge where he heard the noise coming from, and then you'll have a shot opportunity. And in 2022, by October 15th, I sparred in 16 different bucks out of cornfields. Wow. 16. I mean, only one of them was a big enough one to shoot, and yeah. I killed him. Yep. But I sparred in 16 different bucks on the edge of cornfields. Wow. And and another other ways to hunt standing corn is if you've got – uh, some heavy transition security cover or a swamp butting up to a standing cornfield where they can go from security cover to security cover, make that transition during daylight without breaking security cover. You know, if, you, if there's a tree right there, that's an excellent spot to hunt mornings or evenings. Or a lot of times cornfields will have those watering pivots, watering systems. Mm-hmm. And, and when you get to these bigger cornfields, the tires on the outside, the farthest tires from the center of the pivot, they're almost in a straight line because the arc is so huge. And when you go look at those tire tracks, they're wide, you know, and a buck can walk down them without having to worry about hitting his antlers on the side corn. Yep. And, uh, and you'll notice that they're well-traveled. You know, they, they're, they basically turn into transition routes. And setting up on that, where you're just setting up a little makeshift blind in the corn, maybe five or five to eight, ten yards off of that tire track, or even the tractor lane going to the pivot, to the center pivot. Yeah. There's always a tractor lane that feeds that center pivot, 
And it's not a bad idea because that becomes a main transition zone as well. When they want to transition farther in a different area of the field, they'll walk down that little lane because it's got security cover on both that, both sides until they get to where they want to cut back in. Mm-hmm. So that's a great spot. And that's a great spot to, to do a sparring sequence as well as actually physically in the court. Yeah, yep. So one of the things that I, I want to uh, get your take on, obviously you mentioned security cover, security cover, security cover. But one of the things I want you to kind of break down for listeners is what is John Eberhardt's ideal um, – what does his ideal security cover look like as far as height and how thick it is? Um, you know, I've noticed areas where, you know, there's areas where it's just too thick and deer just won't use it. I've seen that on properties. And then there's ideal areas where it's thick enough where deer can move around and they've got trails through it. They've got, like you were saying – multiple uh entrances and exits throughout the bedding area um and you know i tried to you know tell myself in my mind is you know bring myself down to the deer's level and i'm looking at typically everything 50 inches or below you know on a property as far as browse and security cover um what's kind of your what's your uh ideal security cover that guys can kind of visualize my ideal security i love hunting in swamps marsh grass swamps where there's water here and there and there's high spots for deer to bed on. Yep. Um, so it's not super dense. Yeah, you're right. You know, a lot of guys, and I'm actually clarifying that in the book that I'm writing because a lot of guys always ask me, well, you know, I've got security cover that, you know, it's like a huckleberry bog. <laughs> you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't even move through it and right. neither can a human. Yep, well, exactly. obviously that's not, when I'm talking about security cover, that's obviously not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about security cover. There may be some willow willow bushes here, and there's some autumn olive here, and then there's some weeds and some mixed-in cattails. Or it may be underneath a canopy of timber where there's uh, some brush and stuff in a, in a relatively large area. Yeah. It doesn't have to be something where, a, you know, you can't move through. And and deer also like going down the edges of security cover just as much as they like transitioning through security cover. Yep. So, um, it, no, it's not something that's like a jungle of binds and stuff that you can't get through. Right. Uh, it's, it's just something where a deer has a mature deer feels like within two or three bounds, he can escape in security cover where he will not get killed. Okay. Yep. So it doesn't have to be this super dense stuff, but it's got to be dense enough or in sparse enough where they can move around in it, obviously, but still feel secure. There's stuff around them that makes them feel secure. I mean, they don't like, you know, I've talked to guys that have planted food plots and I'm not a food plot guy at all. Never wanted a food plot in my life, (laughs) but I've, I've wanted guys that have planted a food plot and they'll, they'll plant these, and you probably know better than I what the name of them are, these really tall weeds that will grow up to like 10 feet tall. They're, you know, like corn colored. They're light beige. Sure, yep. And totally surround the food plot with it, and then when the deer is in there, they feel like they're in a cage. Yep. You know, like they can't get out, and they just don't feel comfortable being in there, a mature buck during daylight hours. So they want to be able to, the security cover has got to be dense enough they feel safe, yet sparse enough they have a little bit of a visual. Yep, yep, for if you, sure. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and that's why I wanted you to clarify, because I think a lot of people, they're trying to visualize what that looks like, and I think that can be – and I have 100% seen that, and that's an annual screen. I think that's what you're talking about, or maybe like a miscanthus grass. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I've used it for sure, but I've, I have had clients describe almost the same thing where they've, they, you know, they've blocked, somebody's recommended, they've completely surrounded their food plot with it, and, and the deer can't even get through it. You know, it's so thick, and they're like, they're not even using it, you know? So there is for yeah. sure a balance, you know, with, with a lot of things, but yeah, for sure a balance in security cover and how you organize that, and that's one of the things that I've tried to focus on when I'm trying to do a lot of habitat work on properties is organize it so you know obviously there's security cover but those deer are actually using it and a lot of times you can actually fit in more deer on it especially when you know i'm dealing with a lot of small properties small landowners yeah. um so anyhow yeah thanks for uh yeah yeah you can a lot of times when you're managing small properties you can put several of those areas of tall weeds you know breakers visual breaks where deer have different areas they can be and not be intruding on another one visually. Yep. You know, like a, a mature buck can be over on this one, but not see this mature buck over here. Yep. So they, you know, they don't feel confrontational or they'll put up a blocker along a road. If you got property that butts up to a road, they'll put it along the road. So people coming down the road can't see into the property. Yep. You know, that's sure. totally understandable, but to totally block, you know, the entire perimeter in this stuff where once you're in it, you feel like you're in a cage. They, they don't like to feel like they're in a cage. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, but yeah, yeah, security cover is something where deer have, you know, some semblance of a visual, you know, that's what I tell people this a lot of time. And I, I write a lot about this in my book. When you're, when you're rattling, let's say you see a deer, or, and you want to do a grunt call, or you want to try and entice him in because he's not coming in on his own, or you want to do a, a sparring sequence to try and bring him in, you have to have, you know, because you should be in some semblance of a security cover area around the kill zone of your tree, you should have, if you want to try and entice this buck that's out of range in, you have to have some sort of security cover between him and the base of your tree so he can't see to the base of your tree where he's going to assume the noises are coming from yep 100 because if he could obviously see to the base of the tree and there's supposedly something they're making a noise and he can't see it he's not stupid he's not gonna come in so <laughs> yep. so there has to be some sparse security cover between where he's at and where you're at so that he doesn't have a visual to the base of your tree to make him commit to come in close enough for a shot. Yep, and I think that is it can make the difference 100%, like you said, of that buck actually committing, coming in, or he's going to turn the other direction and you know keep keep continuing what he was doing. Oh, absolutely, no doubt yeah. about it. Yep. yep. Um, so, so another uh, different thing that I know you mentioned a little bit um, as far as you know breaking down properties and stuff like that. Um, is kind of e-scouting tips, you know, obviously the world of, you know, technology and e-scouting and stuff like that has really taken off with, you know, so much more technology, whether, you know, whatever software you use. Um, obviously, I've used quite a few of them. There's some great softwares out there. Um, you know, how much weight do you put in or how much time do you put into e-scouting, whether it be a new area before you're breaking it down, um, you know, and is you know, is your time, you know, spent e-scouting, uh, is it spent, is that time better spent, you know, actually doing boots on the ground scouting or, you know, what's kind of the value in that, you know, for guys that are doing Yeah, e it depends on the type of property you're hunting. If you're hunting managed property or you're hunting in an area that's very lightly hunted, like the TV guys do, yeah, you can go 
you can pull up an aerial on Onyx or, you know, on a computer screen and you can scrutinize it. You can, you can pick out pinch points. You can pick out funnels. You can pick out maybe a, a point of secure a cover coming out into a crop field and set something up, you know, on the, on the point of that and, and catch some activity. Uh, when you're hunting property that doesn't get pressure, deer are going to move relatively naturally because there isn't any hunters that are influencing their daytime movements or their traffic. Mm -hmm. So while I will always pull up an aerial and look at something before I go physically scout it to give me ideas, you know, points that I want to focus on and, you know, see what they're actually like. Yeah. Because every place I'm hunting has a lot of other hunting pressure on it. Sure. Um, until I actually put my feet on the ground, I have no comprehension whatsoever of how that area is getting hunted by the other hunters and where their locations are. So, you know, e-scouting is only as good as the property you're hunting. How, how much advantage you can take on e-scouting and apply it to that particular area depends on the amount and type of hunting pressure that area has. Yeah, nope, that totally makes sense. And, yeah, I get, you know, several different inquiries you know, obviously I do basically all of my, my, you know, I do consulting and habitat plans and stuff like that. And I get inquiries, you know, randomly throughout the year. Oh, you know, will you break down and look at this property virtually and stuff like that? And, you know, I, I really don't like doing that because I want to be able to see the property. I want to be able to meet the landowner, go over their hunting goals, you know, how they hunt, what's the neighboring pressure like, see the topography, see the property. You know, there's so much that I can't see that, and I really want to make sure that I'm providing a really good service you know, for what I'm what I'm charging and adding a lot of value to that client. So, you know, that's one thing. You have that, to. Yeah. Yep. You have sure. to. I, let me I, let me give you an example of that. I I used to scout properties for people. You know, just usually small part private parcels and stuff. Yeah. And I got I had a guy fly me out to West Virginia. He had 120 acres, 130 something like that. And he had had two land management teams, one from Mississippi and one from New York, sure. uh, come in, and they scouted it. They told him where to plant food plots. They sent him all these beautiful diagrams yeah. of what everything's supposed to look like. Yeah. And and he said, I've done that for five years, and it has gotten me nowhere. Yeah. And I so when I'm talking to him on the phone, I said, well, what does your perimeter – what's your perimeter hunting like? You know, what – what kind of parcels do you have around your border? Because 120 acres is not a monstrous piece of property for a land management. Deal. Yep. So he said, well, I've got guys that own 10s and 20s. You know, there's probably six. He said, there's six or seven properties that border my 120, and they don't manage deer. They shoot whatever's legal. And I said, well, that makes a whole, that's a whole nother level, because those deer are not staying on your property all their lives. Yep. You know, they're also going on those other people's properties, you know, during the rut. So those are pressured deer that you're hunting. They are they are more heavily pressured than the guys that probably did your land management plan, that that's all they know is just hunting ultra-managed property where everybody around them is the same. Yep. You know, they're all like-minded. So I said, you're hunting a pressured deer, and those pressured deer are not going to come out into the middle of those food plots. They're just not going to be that exposed. If they were going to be that exposed they would already be dead somebody else would have shot them on their property so you have to hunt your property just like you're hunting a 
you know, pressure, almost some semblance of pressured public land. And when I flew out there, he had, he had a beautiful bedding area, had two natural apple trees in it. He had a five acre cornfield that had two apple trees on the corner of one corner of it. And they all had apples the previous year. Cause I, this was post season. I was out there and there was scrapes all over the place. And he, those, he never had, he didn't have a location at either of those spots. And so I said, you know, if it were me, I would take those food plots. I may leave the one in the middle of my property, yep. you know, as far away from the bordering properties as possible, but I'd let the other ones grow up, you know, if, yeah. if possibly just grow up into feral weeds and, you know, CRP type stuff. And I may put an apple tree or two, you know, over in one corner, wherever you have the best security cover that'll be along the edge of what's going to be feral weeds. You know, I'd plant a couple apple trees. That would be a good location. Put them always. Put them next to where there's going to be a phenomenal tree that's going to give you background cover, cover, you know, and then put the apple trees accordingly. And he did that, and he shot bucks the very next two years, at, and they were both at those spots where those apple trees were that were natural, one in the bedding area and one uh, by the standing corn because oh. he planted corn in it every year. Yeah, yep. No, that's a perfect example for sure. Yep, no, I try to uh, definitely, you know, look at a lot of other surrounding factors when I'm, you know, trying to break down a property, whether it's, you know, property that, you know, either public land or looking at a client or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of different factors that go into it, and they can really make or break the, the success. And I think often guys might get too hung up on a certain person or, you know, strategy or, you know, but you really have to look at, you know, okay, what is that person's background and, you know, what are, are they trying to push you a, a specific product, you know, whether it be food plot seed yeah. or whatever, um, you know, or are they, you know, uh, in, you know, are they out for your best? I would want, I would want to know their background. I yeah. would want to know if they ever hunted regular, normal hunting properties. And if they had, what was their success? You know, you look at yeah. these TV guys, a lot of these TV guys that are killing, you know, 150 to 80 inches every year, you know, if you, if you look at the properties in the states they came from and what they killed before they got TV contracts, they sucked. They didn't kill squat. They didn't start killing anything until they, till they started hunting ultra-managed properties. And then as soon as their spouse or their kids pick up a weapon, they kill big bucks too. So. <laughs> Obviously, that tells you how good they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I would never hire somebody that didn't have some sort of a background in killing mature bucks under normal prop on normal properties or public lands before they got into land management. Yeah. Yep. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Well, no. If you don't yeah, have anything, that would be my criteria. Yeah. No, I I definitely agree, and that's something that uh you know I personally am striving for, and uh, you know always learning. Man, it's like. You think you know something? Oh yeah. <laughs> you keep learning more, you know. So, if no, you think fun. you know everything, you're going to become stagnant really yep. fast. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely for sure. I don't care who you are. Yep, yep, <laughs> absolutely. Hey, well, no, if you don't have anything else, um, I really appreciate you coming on here and spending time. Sure. And uh, yeah, no, it's been great uh, following you over the last couple, of, you know, several years that I've uh, followed you and seen your success. And uh, yeah, no, I've read a couple of your books and uh yeah really well, like thank you uh, colin yeah no i appreciate well, it this, this new book is gonna be kick butt because it's gonna be uh 
book's going to be the longest book I've ever written. It's going to be an e-book, paper book, and it's going to come out in audio as well. Okay. And it's going to have, it's going to be kind of saddle hunting oriented because I've been hunting out of a saddle for 43 years, Yep. 44 years. Um, so there's going to be a lot of saddle information, but it's a general bow hunting book for anybody across the country. It's going to cover all types of trains, hill country, swamps, uh, big timber, rural ag, you know, it's going to cover all kinds of terrain features. It's going to cover tactics. It's going to cover everything there is you ever want to know about bow hunting. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, everyone definitely be uh, looking for that. And when were you uh, planning on having that actually published? Um, it probably will not be available till I'd say late summer. I, I hope it's earlier, but that's sure. when it's probably. Good. Okay. I'm pretty much done with my part, but uh, tethered Greg, Godfrey, who's uh, one of the owners of Tethered, is yep. also writing some saddle information in it. You okay. know, saddle gear. Yep. Um, so I'm I'm waiting for his his part, but I'm I'm buttoning up my stuff. It's, I've got 28 chapters done already. Wow, awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And each chapter is on something different. Okay, cool, awesome. Well, yeah. Again, appreciate you coming on here, and uh, maybe I'll okay. have you back on uh, for before season. Maybe go over some. Uh, you know, preseason scouting, stuff like that. And, uh, okay. yeah, look forward to, uh, look forward to, uh, look at, looking at your book and hopefully getting one and, uh, hopefully everybody can, uh, purchase one of those when they come out and definitely look into it. Um, also, you know, if you want to do working guys, you know, reach, uh, you and then as for, of course, there's all your content. Um, I know you do a lot on YouTube and stuff. How guys can, uh, reach you? Uh, well, I, I have a website. Uh, it's deer-john.net, um, and I do workshops. I'm doing whitetail workshops this spring. The first one's full, but that all that information is on my website. Okay. Uh, but if they want to reach me, if somebody wants my scent control regiment, which I highly recommend, uh, and it's free, <laughs> uh, they can email me a scent control regiment. So all I have to put scent control regiment on the in the ID of the text, and uh, just. It, my email is D E E R J O H N five one at gmail dot com, and my email is also in my website. Okay. So okay. if you just Google my name, my website will pop up. My emails there. Just email me for scent control regiment. Awesome. I've got cool. a yeah. I've got a bunch of documents that I send that I've written. Because, I mean, that's that's a deer's main defense, and when you can overcome a deer's nose, uh, you're going to stack a lot more deer up before you're done hunting. Absolutely. Well, that's a great free resource that uh, definitely a lot of folks should definitely take advantage of. So, yeah, for sure. I will put that uh, that information in, in the link in the description, guys, so you guys can check that out. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on here. And, okay. Uh, okay, Colin, I appreciate the offer. Yeah, okay. of course. Bye-bye. Well, hey, I hope everyone really enjoyed that podcast. Uh, it was great to have uh, John on the podcast. I uh, appreciate him spending time breaking down his years of hunting and all of his experience, you know, hunting uh, heavily pressured areas. And uh, hopefully you guys had some good takeaways from that. And uh, I will leave all of John's uh, information for his uh, YouTube channel and then as well as his um, actual work, whitetail workshops in the link in the description if you guys want to check that out. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to have some more podcasts coming up here soon. Um, I think we're going to have Jim Ward on here next. 
diving more into kind of bedding areas, design, walls to cover, stuff like that. Um, and I'm going to be uh, on the road doing some consulting this week. Um, so I'm going to try to get some more, a um, couple small short videos and stuff on YouTube channel, maybe on some uh, Facebook, Instagram, stuff like that. So be looking for that. And I uh, appreciate everybody uh, watching. And uh, be sure to always strive to be a better steward of God's creation. Thanks, guys.